it's summer. And you know what that means? It's time for a Plymouth gin and tonic. So grab yourself a glass and some ice. Start with a pourer of Plymouth gin, which is distilled using a blend of seven botanicals. Add in some tonic, then finish with a slice of orange. Now that is the perfect gin and tonic. Plymouth Gin, distilled with care and craft in England since 1793. Just a note before we start, there is a little bit of cursing in this episode. So, you've been warned. Novelist Elif Batuman was still on book tour for her first novel, The Idiot, when she started thinking about a sequel. She kept getting this response from readers that bothered her. People were mad that at the end of the book, her protagonist hadn't had sex with the guy she was supposed to have sex with. The Idiot is a fictional account of Elif's first year in college. Her stand-in in the book, Selen, follows this guy to Hungary. She's kind of in love with him. But he's evasive. This is actually something that happened to Elif when she was young, too. It was a very destabilizing um, feeling to be to be talking to people who had read The Idiot, who had felt that, like, nothing had happened. And I thought, just, what an odd way to respond to a book. And then it started to feel sort of familiar, and I was like, what is this reminding me of? And I was like, oh my God, this reminds me of how I felt in my actual life when I (laughs) went back to school in my second year of college. And people would ask, like, oh, how did everything go over this summer? Did anything happen? And I would have to tell them, no, nothing happened, even though, to my mind, A lot of things happened. What does happen in The Idiot is that Selen makes friends in Hungary, mostly with women. The guy's unavailable, but the summer is still transformative for her. She learns a lot. She's growing into adulthood. And to Elif, it felt like the critics were missing the point. A woman's story isn't only worth telling if it involves a man or if it involves some form of consummation. So she started to write a new novel in response. It's out now. And it's called Either Or. So I started Either Or with Selin getting back to school and people asking her, so did anything happen? And she's having to say, like, no, nothing happened. And she's also starting to think of, um, you know, she's she's that much further in her path of thinking of, of herself as a writer and wondering what her books are going to be about and thinking that she has to, like, live certain experiences in order to write them. And she's learning the kind of, like, non-negotiable nature of basically a penetrative, like, heterosexual encounter in the life of a young woman to turn it into narrative. Like, that's what she's getting from her reading. Mm -hmm. That's what she's getting from all the people who she's talking to. And that was an idea that I really wanted to engage with in the book. I mean, it it sounds like an absurd question to ask, but, like, you know, what other things could constitute narrative for a young woman other than getting fucked by some guy? Like, you know, Mm -hmm. any number of things. (laughs) And yet that, that isn't how it's necessarily framed. And, yeah, that's a duality that I was really trying to play with in the book. Today, I talked to Elif about Either Or, which is one of the buzziest novels of the summer. Then I speak with the FT's Esther Bintleff, who recently wrote a piece for the magazine about how to give and receive feedback. As humans, we're built to hate feedback, but our culture is obsessed with it. So how do we manage that? This is FT Weekend. I'm Lila Raptopoulos. Despite its critics, Elif's first novel, The Idiot, was a total hit. It was shortlisted for a Pulitzer in fiction. 
Elif is also a staff writer for The New Yorker. And the sequel, Either Or, is already on best of fiction lists, and it's likely to do well with awards this year, too. I read Either Or recently when I was on vacation, and I totally loved it. It felt like one of the best books I've read about a woman who's re-examining a culture that made life really hard for her as a teenager. So I invited Elif to our New York studio. Elif, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. It's such a pleasure to have you on. I'm curious to hear how you would describe what Either Or is about. Um, Either Or is, uh, it's about... Céline, the main character's name is Céline. It's a first-person narration, and it's about her second year of college, and it's based um, loosely on my own experiences when I was in college, which was was in the 90s, and I wrote it in the period between 2017 and 2020, so a lot of it was about revisiting the 90s and my own early sexual history and early education from the perspective of all of the new vocabulary and, you know, me too, and all of the new ways of describing the past that I had learned through the those years that I was writing it. The basic premise of Either Or is that Selen is a sophomore in college who's grappling with what it means to be a writer and what it means to live a meaningful life. Like many 19-year-olds, she's searching everywhere. She's voraciously reading, mostly history, fiction, and philosophy. And mostly she's just searching for some guidance on how to get to who she's becoming. But the books that she's reading as part of the Western canon at Harvard are not helping. Most are written by men for men. They don't have a template in them for a woman in the 90s. So the first novel that features Selen is called The Idiot, um, (laughs) named after Dostoevsky's novel of the same name. Um, This one is named after Kierkegaard's book, Either Or. And the central theme there is whether one should live an ethical or an aesthetic life. Um, the book provides pretty horrible options. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but can, exactly. you, can you explain it and, you know, what Selin is trying to get from it? Yeah. So Selin and her friend um, Svetlana come up with this framework for um, Svetlana actually comes up with it. She's like, you know, you, Selin, are trying to live an aesthetic life and I'm trying to live an ethical life. And that's the difference between us. Céline is really taken by this dichotomy, and then she finds this book by Kierkegaard, which um, actually seems to be a book about how to live your life, which is all she ever wants to know is how to live your life, and, like, nobody's talking about it. And for Kierkegaard, the ethical life seems to be—he's um, only talking about men. For, so for the ethical life, you have to find a wife and get married and have kids, and it's going to be really boring and really hard, but it's also going to be this, like— noble undertaking that is going to give you an understanding of like historical duration. And if you're living an aesthetic life, then your model is Don Juan or Don Giovanni. It's a series of seductions of women. um, And you sort of like abandon the women after each one and and they go crazy or kill themselves. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And I, you know, Kierkegaard didn't actually think that either of those was the right way to live. Um, But, you know, Céline is really, uh, reads it extremely literally. (laughs) And she really throws herself into it. And she thinks, you know, I, I don't want to necessarily get married and have kids. I'm not really sure. Do I do I seduce young girls or do I get seduced? But then, you know, what if I go crazy and kill myself? Okay, I guess I'm going to have to just have a lot of adventures and do everything I can to not go crazy or kill myself. And then at the end, write a book about it. And that's going to be the aesthetic life. Selen knows that something is off about the lessons she's getting from these great books. But it's 1996 and she doesn't have the language to question them yet. So we're just muddling through it with her. 
The way she sees it, the world is presenting her with very strict binaries. Either or. And not just around living either an ethical or an aesthetic life, but around most things. Take, for example, how she thinks about Picasso. It's interesting to watch Selen sort of look for answers, and often she's looking in books written by men mm-hmm. um, as sort of part of the canon. Usually, ultimately, the women in them are like disposable objects um, or just happen to be there. She can't seem to find books that inspire her by women. And you watch her in this scene sort of convince herself that she likes, even in art, she likes Picasso, you know, although he sort of horrifies her in many ways that, you know, like to be a thinking person who's serious at Harvard, Mm -hmm. you know, one has to like Picasso. Well, yeah, I mean... All of these things that I see as liberating ideologies now, like, you know, queer theory and feminism and, you know, these new ways of looking at history, I I knew about. It's not like they didn't exist in the 90s. It's like I wanted to stage the missed encounters, the reasons that those things didn't seem appealing to me at the time. And I also wanted to show, like, I think the Picasso is a great example, like, the, the choices that Selin makes and she kind of grudgingly is like, OK, I guess I'm I'm on team pro Picasso. <laughs> and the reason that she makes that decision is because the people who are like, oh, Picasso was a was a monster who destroyed women are sort of lumped together with the people who are like, I want a drawing of a tree to look like a tree. And so she thinks that she has to. That's that's the choice that's on the yeah. table. And now I see many more choices, actually, that the inspiration for that scene was um There was a Picasso uh, sculpture show in, um, I think, at MoMA in New York in 2016 that I went to, which is where I had the ideas to to have Céline think about Picasso. And it was, I just remember walking around this hall and just like looking around the walls and it just felt like I was in the spaceship in Alien, like where the like, (laughs) you know, the, the like ossified people are stuck on the wall being like, kill me. It just looked like these (laughs) splintered, fragmented women. And I was like, wait, why is this great art? Like, why is this the greatest art ever? Um, Is it really that great? And and I was just looking around and everyone's just like looking with these like rapt expressions. And the and the text was like, Picasso is such a master. He's a magpie genius. Look, he went to the garbage dump and found this old, <laughs> you know, rusty saw and used it to make the breasts on a pregnant woman. And this is a punishment for his wife who wouldn't bear him another child. And everyone's just looking there with this like delighted smile like, wow, this is art. I'm in New York City. Right. And it just, yeah, I felt this dissonance that I was excited to explore. Yeah, yeah. It's true that either or is not an action novel, though things do happen, like Selen does end up having sex and a lot of it. But ultimately, this is a novel about Selen's internal life. And like any work that fictionalizes its author's real experience, it's also about that writer today. It's about Elif looking back at herself. I related to Selen's feeling of being a college student where you're just trying to make sense of how to live a quality life and like how the world works. And um, so every book you read and class you take feels like it kind of blows your mind. And there's this very sweet moment where she goes to a lecture and she gets so excited about like an ethics lecture that she has to leave. (laughs) Not because she didn't like it, but just because like the ideas that she was learning was so overwhelming. Too much, yeah. (laughs) Right. right. Um, Can you talk about about that, about that age and why that was interesting to you? Yeah, I'm so now now I'm in my 40s, which has been um, I I think it's kind of a novelistic age. I think like a lot of 
I don't know if you think the first novel is Don Quixote. It's like um, it's someone who's middle aged, who's looking back at the ideology of a past time, like of knight errantry and trying to revisit it and understand what it was about. And I think it's like when when you're in your 20s, you think that you're just living in the world. You're not perceiving the things that are happening in the present as being historical. And by the time you mm-hmm. go another 20 years, you see how many of those ideas have been outdated and now seem, um, you know, really benighted or funny or, or just, you know, seem very other. And also, as you get to be uh, in your 40s, which is something that I was really afraid of, things do stop um, registering with the same emotional intensity. Um, that's something that I heard a lot. And of course, I started to experience it also. So part of writing the book was about recapturing that also. Yeah. The other thing about that time that resonated with me about college is Selen and her friends, um, they don't seem to have the information to know that like life doesn't have to be suffering. <laughs> <laughs> like you watch them interact with the world with this kind of earnestness. Mm-hmm. Um and that makes the book very funny. Mm-hmm. And I guess I'm curious, sort of like, what's unique about that time? Yeah, it's a it's a really interesting question because um, it's hard for me to separate what was unique about the 90s from what is kind of just a fact of being in your 20s. That's the same for everyone. I, I actually think of this as a book about trauma, but it's also it, it's I tried very hard to make it funny because Céline doesn't know that she's she's going through trauma and she mm-hmm. she doesn't really know that she's suffering. She's telling this story to herself about life being um, exciting and being an adventure and being all of these hilarious developments happening. And of course, the hilarious things that happen aren't like necessarily super comfortable or super fun, but she's like, that's what makes life interesting. So that I think is, a, is an idea that got outdated. And also, I think being in the 90s and being before the internet Um, I think Céline and her friends are able to be in more of a bubble and to know Mm. a little bit less about what's normal and what's expected. And I don't know, there was like a little bit more mystification of young people that I think was possible before the Internet. Yeah, yeah. Um, I was thinking about just being in the 90s for for the course of your novel. Um, And it was really interesting. You know, I feel like culturally... We're thinking a lot about the 90s now. We are asking ourselves whether the way, for example, we treated Monica Lewinsky or Anita Hill was okay, you know. And um, Disney's remaking all these 90s movies. Mm -hmm. Um, So there's all these sort of 90s elements sort of bubbling around me. But then being in your novel was interesting because we were in the past as if it was the present, Mm -hmm. knowing what we know now. Yeah. And so... What did you feel like you could do by doing that? Oh, I'm really happy that you had that experience of being and feeling like the 90s was the present, but with your current state of knowledge. That was like the the trick that I was really hoping to pull off. Um, And it it came from, I mean, I was living through those years that involved so much going back to the 90s. You know, the Me Too things that you mentioned with Monica Lewinsky and then Anita Hill and... And also just the the fall of the Berlin Wall and the end of the the fall of the Soviet Union and this idea that there was the end of history, which was this Francis Fukuyama book that was very um, influential when when I was growing up. And I, I think that that ideology of history being over and of um, I think it was actually a kind of depoliticizing ideology. At least that's how it worked on me personally and on a lot of my friends. Um, 
I don't think that I considered myself a feminist at that time. It's not something that I thought about. I thought that sexism was over and we just have to kind of wait for the last, you know, benighted people to die and, mm-hmm. and then everything's going to be fine. And I think that a lot of people thought that and part of the revisiting of the 90s comes from the realization of how wrong we were and of looking back at those movies and seeing how really appalling they are and 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 not in the same way as in the 50s when people were kind of laughing at it but with this idea that you know universality has happened and we just have to wait for the freedom and the free democracy to like penetrate all of the edges of the <laughs> world and it's just the waiting game from now on which it turned out to be so mistaken so Elif, you're saying that in promoting the book you've talked to a lot of people who are college age now in their late teens, early 20s. How do you feel about the kind of, you know, early 20 experience they're having versus the one that that you had? I mean, I I feel really encouraged after talking to younger readers. I'm trying to think of specific examples of encouraging things that I heard. I just feel like they don't seem signed up for a certain kind of like receiving culture that I was signed up for at their age. It's not that they're questioning more because I, I mean, I feel like when I was in my twenties, I went to a school that was like, we teach people to think Socratically and you have to be skeptical and you have to question everything. And it, you know, it produced this kind of thinking that we talked about, like, oh, either I like Picasso or I hate Mm -hmm. him. And I just feel like there's a lot more room now, like that, that young people aren't really looking at the world that way. They're kind of navigating through this like huge spectrum of choices, like much bigger than what was on the table when I was younger. And and there are things that are enviable about that. And then there's also things that are really scary about it. Like, I think, I think we might be at a point where the idea of a canon is, I mean, in the past few years, the conversation about the canon has been like, let's expand the canon. But I think after a certain point, like, it's just not going to be feasible to think that all of the different people who are in the world could find the same body of texts useful. And that was an idea that we really took for, that I took for granted when I was younger. And you do miss some certain sense of community, but you also don't have that needless toil of, like, beating against things that feel like they have nothing to do with you for yeah. no reason. Yeah. Elif, thank you so much. This was really thought-provoking. Oh, thank you. Thank you for your wonderful questions. About a decade ago, my colleague Esther Bintliff had a bad day at work. So she went home and she told her husband about it over dinner. I had a, an experience of some negative feedback at work and I went home and was complaining about it and being upset about it. And he told me this thing that he'd heard, which was about the three stages of feedback that we go through. This is not a scientific theory, by the way. Esther's husband heard it on a comedy podcast from the actor Bradley Whitford. You know that guy from the West Wing? But he stood by it, and Esther loved it. The first stage is that you sort of think, fuck you, with apologies Mm -hmm. for language. (laughs) But um, you tend to have that visceral response of feeling quite angry at the person who's giving you the negative feedback. Then the second stage is, I suck, which is where I tend to go, it's sort of like, oh, yes, I'm actually terrible. I've done really badly. This person is right. And often I end up then feeling, what's the point? You know, I can't do this thing. And the third stage is, let's make it better. And the idea is, 
how can you get to stage three quickly? Because stage one and two are really normal, but the stage three is where it's productive and you can actually start to move forward. And I found that super helpful in that Mm. moment because I immediately realized I was in stage two, but that was okay. I could get out of it. Esther is the deputy editor of the FT Weekend magazine. She just wrote a cover story about feedback because we live in a culture that's become obsessed with it. In the workplace, we have regular performance reviews. There's this new thing called 360 reviews where bosses and employees and colleagues all give feedback to each other. There are courses, best-selling books. It's become a multi-billion dollar industry. But not all feedback is created equal. And actually, we're biologically hardwired to hate receiving it. We often have these visceral responses, like a drop in the stomach or sweaty palms. So Esther went on this journey to talk to feedback pioneers and find out what the best way to give and receive feedback actually is. Esther, close friend of the podcast, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you, Lila. It's great to be here. So I'm curious how we got to where we are with feedback. Like, how are we now this culture that's obsessed with it when kind of recently we were a culture that sort of put our heads down and did what our bosses told us? Is this a startup culture mentality thing? Is this Google's fault? Like, what happened? Yeah, I think it goes back before that, actually. So I think that some of it comes from this move into mass manufacturing and Mm -hmm. the efforts to speed up factories and to get workers to work more and more efficiently. So I think part of it is this drive um, in sort of 20th century capitalism to become more and more efficient. And I also read something about how psychological management becomes more and more important, whereas a lot of the jobs pre-20th century were physical and manual jobs. As we get later into the 20th century, a lot of our jobs are sitting in offices at computers. And actually, it really matters what state of mind someone's in. (laughs) If they're not engaged with the job or they're bored or whatever, it can actually affect their productivity. One of the most influential theories of recent years is called radical candor. It was coined by the feedback guru Kim Scott, who wrote a best-selling book of the same name. And the idea is we should be giving feedback in the workplace that's brutally honest. Tough love. Here's Kim Scott talking about it at a conference in 2016. She's telling the story about a time when her boss, Sheryl Sandberg, told her to go see a speech therapist because she said um too much. She says to me after after a little bit of praise, she says, you said um an awful lot. Were you aware of it? And I sort of breathed a huge sigh of relief. And I kind of made a brush-off gesture. And I said, yes, I know, I do that. It's kind of a verbal tick. No big deal, really. And she stops. She looks right at me. And she says, when you say um every third word, it makes you sound stupid and insecure. Now she has my full attention. Kim Scott, tell me about her and her theory of feedback. Yeah, so... Kim Scott is an amazing woman. I actually loved speaking to her. And she is basically all about being kind, but telling the truth about people's performance. And Mm -hmm. she thinks that if we hold back and we don't tell people when things are going wrong, then actually that's not kindness. She calls it 
ruinous empathy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> when we're too <laughs> empathetic, when we're so empathetic to a person that we're afraid to tell them something that actually would help them and would help them improve and develop and grow. Here's Kim again talking about Sheryl Sandberg's feedback. And some people would have said that it was mean of her to say that. But in fact, it was the very kindest thing she could have done for me at that moment in my career. Because when I did go to the speech coach, I realized she really wasn't exaggerating. I did say um, every third word. And the weird thing about this was that I had been giving presentations for my entire career. And nobody had told me how often I said um. Radical candor became huge in Silicon Valley, and then it quickly became a trope, like leaning in or disruption. Briefly, I'm curious about the criticism Kim Scott got for this. It was made fun of on Silicon Valley, right? Yeah, so the TV show Silicon Valley had an episode where there was a character who actually talked about Rad Can, um, which was obviously about her kind of ethos, and it turned out the problem was he was a complete manipulative bully. You want candor, Richard? I'm a world-class COO, okay? And your heavy metal friend, I mean, he's obviously a dick. And you know know what else, Richard? You're 20 to 30 pounds underweight. It's gross. Kim had no idea she'd be made fun of. And when she heard about it, she was mortified. The episode aired and she was on a plane and she landed and, and just had all these messages. And she said to me she was devastated by it because it's not at all what she intends. But she sort of admits that if you if you take it the wrong way, you could imagine radical candor to be an excuse to be quite mean to someone and to tell them how bad they are. And that's not her aim. So she very much emphasizes compassion. And mm. it should only happen in a relationship where you, you're regularly showing the person that you care about them and their well-being, and also where you're praising them when stuff goes right. Right, right, right. It reminds me of an old boss of mine once. Um, I showed her an email that I was going to send to somebody very senior, and she said, it's full of great stuff, really interesting, really good. No one's going to read it. It's like <gasps> eight times too long. Oh, <laughs> like If wow. you want people with, yeah. very, with no time to read something, like it's got to be three sentences. I actually really loved that piece of feedback. I think about it a lot. But you heard Esther. She gasped when I told her about it. And that's the thing about feedback. Different people like it different ways. There are some people who think feedback doesn't work at all, including one academic who's pioneered the field of feedback. His name is Abraham Kluger. He's been researching workplace feedback for more than two decades. And now he identifies as a feedback skeptic. Here he is talking to Esther about why he thinks it doesn't work. Why do we care about feedback to begin with? Mm-hmm. Why do we want, why do people want to give feedback? So I, I'm coming to later parts of my career, of mm-hmm. my, my present work. And I think that we often want to change the behavior of the other person. Paradoxically, it's often ineffective. And one way to do it that we don't think about is, is to listen to the other person, to let them change on their own. Avraham's argument is that feedback is relational. There are two people in any feedback-giving scenario. It's not just top-down. So you need trust. But bosses often don't think of it that way. They see it as this way to improve efficiency. 
So feedback, it might work in a partnership where two people trust and respect each other, but it rarely works in a rigid corporate hierarchy. If the person feels cared for, they're much, much more likely to take um, the feedback on board and to act on it. Whereas um, in the absence of that, I think that's when it often becomes problematic. Avraham didn't start out as a skeptic, but in the 90s, his research started to indicate that feedback didn't work. One of his studies found that in more than 30% of cases, people's performance after getting feedback actually declined. So he changed his mind. He basically said, rather than like a performance development review or 360 feedback, he prefers this thing that he developed called the Feed Forward interview, which he offered to do with me. So I did over Zoom. And I was quite nervous because I didn't really know what what would happen. Um, But he basically asked me to talk about a time in my job when I was really happy, when I felt really alive and interested. And I talked about a reporting trip I'd done. And he asked me in great detail about it. And then he would repeat back to me, you know, the things I was saying and say, so what I'm hearing is this and the things that you needed in order to make this happen, what were they? And at the end of it, he said, okay, this is what I understand. Um, This is the code for Esther to flourish at work. And it sounds kind of weird, but in the moment, it actually felt quite powerful and I could really visualize it. And I did sort of give myself some critical feedback in the process. And his argument is, If you are sort of enjoying your work and you feel alive when you're working and you feel like you're using your abilities, then you are more likely to perform well. And we want to be helping people get to that stage. So that's like, it's almost like a career coach or manager style, right? Like instead of me telling you what I think you should be doing better to do this job, I'm going to find out from you what you actually want to be doing. Yeah. And maybe in that process, interestingly, you end up saying, I don't want to be doing this at all. Well, I think that is the risk because I think it can be quite unsettling. And I think there are lots of jobs that don't really have much inherent joy in them, I suppose. And and is it a bit (laughs) like, is it a bit unfair to expect, you know, that people would have that? And also it might be that as a boss, you might not actually want that person to change what they're doing and to Mm -hmm. want to do something else. So Avraham says that if you aren't sincere about wanting employees to be more fulfilled, just skip the feedback. Esther, I'm curious about the other side of this, like the receiving of feedback and what you learned about that. What are some strategies for getting from the fuck you stage or the I suck stage (laughs) to actually being able to take it in and make some changes based on it? So I did learn some really useful strategies, I think. One of the things is to have what's called a growth mindset or a mindset of improvement. Basically, starting off from a position before you get the feedback, just try to hear it with the idea like this is something I'm going to learn from and I'm going to be able to grow from rather than this is something that's going to hurt me. Mm -hmm. And the other thing that everyone I spoke to recommended was pausing. So don't immediately respond try and just sit with it and hear out the person and think to yourself I'm not going to respond right now I'm just going to take this in and also Kim Scott also talked about kind of observing your emotional response with curiosity so don't be afraid of having the emotional response which I think is where I was coming from where I was sort of ashamed of even having these big emotions right actually it's really normal and human to have an emotional response when you get bad feedback that's fine and just try and sit with it and observe it 
Esther, my very last question is, um, do you feel like you're better at receiving feedback now? Yeah, I, well, I hope so. I do feel like I have come to terms with the fact that having an emotional response to feedback is normal and it's human. And actually, the thing you don't want to do is to try and squash that and pretend it's not there. Just like acknowledge it and and be like, it's okay, I'm going to get through this. So I feel like in that sense, I've kind of made peace with it. And I hope, like I said, I hope I would be better at giving feedback as well. Esther, this was such a pleasure. Thank you for giving us so much to think about. Um, Thanks for being on the show. Thank you so much, Lila. That's the show this week. Thank you for listening to FT Weekend, the podcast from the Financial Times. If you have feedback for us on this episode, I don't want to hear it. I'm just kidding. We love hearing from you. You can email us at ftweekendpodcast at ft.com. You can find the show on Twitter at ftweekendpod. Or you can find and message me on Instagram or Twitter at Lila Rapp. Next week, we talk about reclaiming the foundational role of African-American cooking in American cuisine. We go to Savannah, Georgia to meet Mishama Bailey. She just won Outstanding Chef at this year's James Beard Awards, and she's doing this work out of her restaurant, The Gray, which exists in a formerly segregated Greyhound bus station. I also speak with Stephen Satterfield. He's the founder of Whetstone Media, which is dedicated to telling food origin stories like this one. Links to everything mentioned today are in the show notes, alongside a link to the best offers available on a subscription to the FT, including 50% off a digital subscription and a really good deal on FT Weekend in print. Those offers are at ft.com slash weekendpodcast. If you want to find those deals, make sure to use that link. Just a reminder that the FT Weekend Festival in London is coming up soon. It's on Saturday, September 3rd at Kenwood House on Hampstead Heath. And it really is wonderful. You can come meet me and Esther and all the other colleagues you hear on this show. Buy a ticket at ft.com slash ftwf. That link with a discount code for 20 pounds off is in the show notes. I'm Lila Raptopoulos, and here is my wonderful team. Katya Kamkova is our senior producer. Lulu Smith is our assistant producer. Our sound engineers are Breen Turner and Sam Javinko with original music by Metaphor Music. Topher Forges is our executive producer, and special thanks go, as always, to Cheryl Brumley and Renee Kaplan. Have a lovely weekend, and we will find each other again next week. It's summer, and you know what that means. It's time for a Plymouth gin and tonic. So grab yourself a glass and some ice. Start with a pour of Plymouth gin which is distilled using a blend of seven botanicals. Add in some tonic, then finish with a slice of orange. Now that is the perfect gin and tonic. Plymouth Gin, distilled with care and craft in England since 1793. Did you know the Capital Ideas podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.
Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.